What do you see in your mind's eye when you think Black Panther Party? For a lot of white people in this country, the following image tends to define the Black Panther Party. Ready? It's black militants with huge afros, black leather jackets, and berets carrying huge rifles and other guns openly in the street. Yep. But what happens when you only have a caricature of a group of people in your mind without actually knowing their more complete, real stories, right? Like, we can't just go off of stereotypes because think about what happened when people blindly stereotype Trump supporters as uneducated gun-toting Southerners, when in reality, so many Trump supporters are also well-educated, upper-class white Northerners. You know, what happens when you paint a group of people like radical bleeding heart liberal elites and then you dismiss all of their suggestions for governmental support with a blanket? No. I mean, then you perpetuate an inaccurate understanding of the fundamental safety nets that humans sort of need versus this concept of socialism. You peddle this false narrative of individualism and dismiss the need for community, though the truth is none of us make it through the society alone. I mean, as seen in Texas and all across the country with the extreme weather in February 2021, we need to help each other out because that is what a community, which is ultimately what a country is, does. Unless you're Ted Cruz and you just go to Cancun, Mexico. Yeah. Oh, Ugh, anyway. So today we're going to talk about the less highlighted contributions that the Black Panther Party made to community. And these are the things that we need to learn about so we can do them ourselves like right now, right? There's so many things of all the things we've discovered, humanity needs each other. And so there are things the Black Panther Party did that are great ideas and we need to do them to support our greater communities and each other right now. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to dismantle systemic racism. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So if you're listening to these episodes in order, and if not, this is part two of our look at the Black Panther Party. And part one was a lot about how the Black Panther Party viewed the police and how they used their role as you know, under the open carry laws at the time of California and their community ties to really support each other in situations of police stops and also took a deeper look into the prison system. But another really important function of the Black Panther Party, as Anti-Racism Daily points out, is that they were created to be an organization in service to the Black community. And that just wasn't through the weapons, the police, and the prisons. They made a 10-point program to stop racism and protect and liberate Black Americans. And there were literally 10 points, like 10 bullet points, that they felt were really important to achieve their goals. The 10-point program denounces capitalism and demands things like guaranteed employment, housing, expansive education, healthcare, and the end of police brutality. Just an asterisk here, a lot of these are called for in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was written by countries in the United Nations, actually. So they're not radical or extreme or unwarranted to think about treating humans like humans. Yeah. And if these sound familiar also, many of these asks are the same calls to action that activists are fighting for today in 2021. And the amazing thing about this Black Panther Party is that they went beyond asking. They actually created these programs. So here are eight programs created by the Black Panther Party that the Atlanta Black Star calls more empowering than federal programs. Listen to these and think about whether you like or don't like the idea. Think about whether you could create these sorts of programs or support them in some way yourself in today's day and age. All right. So kicking it off with number one, People's Free Ambulance Service. This service provided 
free rapid transportation for sick or injured people without time-consuming checks into the patient's financial status or means. I mean, that just removed a whole barrier, right? Imagine that. You can get your life saved even if you're poor. You're still a human being worth helping. That's amazing. Yeah. So the People's Free Ambulance Service operated with at least one ambulance on a 24-hour emergency basis and from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on a non-emergency or convalescent basis. And this is according to one of the big Black Panther Party scholars. People were transported to and from the hospital or doctor's office in a modern, comfortable ambulance by courteous, efficient, and knowledgeable attendants. And I should asterisk this and say that a lot of these services were started first in Oakland, which was the home of the Black Panther Party. And eventually we'll talk a little bit about how they spread to other areas. All right. So number one was the People's Free Ambulance Service. Number two the free food program. And I think we can all agree that this is a crucial need to this day. And the Black Panthers did it. This program provided free food to Black and other oppressed people. It's as simple as it sounds. The intent of the free food program was to supplement the groceries of Black and poor people until economic conditions allowed them to purchase good food at reasonable prices. And basically, this program provided two services to the community. One, an ongoing supply of food to meet their daily needs, and two, periodic mass distributions of food to reach a larger segment of the community than could be serviced from the ongoing supply. So in these mass distributions, the community was provided with bags of fresh food containing items such as eggs, canned fruits and vegetables, chickens, milk, potatoes, rice, bread, cereal, and so forth. And what was amazing to me about this is that a minimum of a week's supply of food was included in each bag. So imagine you're not only getting this food to supplement what you can otherwise buy, but you're getting a week's worth. So that means that you don't have to worry about it for that time period. I mean, you think about the programs that schools have right now. Like I remember when schools were shut down last year, there was a huge panic and a worry about what are kids going to do? Where are kids going to get their food? We have safety net programs like this in place already for our country. But what I like about what I heard was that it was fresh food. A friend of mine I was just on the phone with said that she likes volunteering at shelters and places to feed women food. And so often the volunteers are told to bring food like hot dogs or lasagna or whatever. And women aren't given like cilantro and avocados and fresh fruits and vegetables and spices that are really healthy, nutritious, and feel better than the fast food that we often just give people because they're cheaper. Yeah. So I think it's really important. Okay. Point three. Yes. The Youth Institute. Speaking of kids, right? The Intercommunal Youth Institute was established in January 1971 by the Black Panther Party. And three years later in 74, the name was changed to Oakland Community School. The Black Panther Party goal was to get children to learn to their highest potential and to strengthen their minds so that one day they would be successful. I mean, again, simple, right? Like right? give kids the tools to succeed. So the school graduated its first class in June of 1974 and in September of 1977, so again, three years after that, California Governor Edmund Jerry Brown Jr. and the California legislature gave Oakland Community School a special award for having set the standard for the highest level of elementary education in the state. Isn't that amazing? It's a big state. So yeah, it is a big state. On the other side of the age spectrum, another program, Seniors Against a Fearful Environment, also known as SAFE. SAFE was a nonprofit corporation started by the Black Panther Party at the request of a group of senior citizens because they wanted to prevent muggings and attacks upon the elderly, especially when they went out to cast their social security or pension checks. 
Isn't this genius? Because I think about how I'm hearing now with the anti-Asian attacks, right, about people walking elderly Asians because they are so afraid. And this was started by the Black Panther Party to do this for the community. Amazing. It is amazing. And what I like is how responsive they were to the needs of the community, because before like seniors went to the Black Panther Party, they'd actually gone to the Oakland Police Department to request protection. But instead of actually helping and protecting the seniors, the seniors were told that they should walk close to the curb in the future. (laughs) That's helpful. Like that's going to help, right? And that comes from a Panther report from David Hilliard, who served as the party's chief of staff. So the SAFE program offered free transportation and escort services to the residents of the Satellite Senior Homes, which is a residential complex for the elderly in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. Again, looking out for our elders who have paved the way to make our lives possible right now, right? Uh, This is one of my favorites. (laughs) Another one, the breakfast program. Already sounds familiar. The free breakfast for school children program was set up in Berkeley, California in 1968 by Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. It was the first significant community program organized by the Panthers. And it might be like the most well-known By the end of 1969, free breakfast was served in 19 cities under the sponsorship of the national headquarters and 23 local affiliates. More than 20,000 children received full free breakfast of bread, bacon, eggs, and grits before going to their elementary or junior high school. That's a good breakfast too. That's not like a cold cereal and, you know, a small carton of milk. Right. Here, empty sugar and minimum protein to get your brain going. No, it sounds like an incredibly important thing for children to have for so many reasons. So health clinics, another program. I mean, these clinics were called the People's Free Medical Centers. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And they were eventually, again, when we talked, you said me, Sasha, before about how they were often started in Oakland or in Berkeley in that area, but a lot of them spread across the country. These clinics were established in 13 cities across the country, from Cleveland to New Haven, Connecticut, from Winston-Salem in North Carolina to LA in California. Women, according to sociologist Alondra Nelson, were the backbone of the effort, which is not really that surprising, considering that approximately 60% of Black Panther Party members were female. That's really important, I think. Yeah, and we'll talk about the image of women involved in the party later on. But some of the clinics were in storefronts, others were in trailers or in hastily built structures, and most did not last long. But they offered services like testing for high blood pressure, lead poisoning, tuberculosis, diabetes. Amazing. I mean, they did cancer detection screenings, right? Physical exams, treatment for cold and flus, immunization against polio, measles, rubella, diphtheria, like... There were so many important health programs that were centered in these clinics. And Nelson reported that many of the women and men involved in these free medical centers went on to become credentialized healthcare professionals afterwards. That's amazing. I just think of the role that even for a short amount of time to have that free clinic in your area could have made you know a life-saving difference. So- Next up is the Black Student Alliance. The alliance was formed in May 1972 when several Black student unions in the Bay Area pulled together with the goal of creating concrete programs on the campus that would unify the student body and Black students with the Black communities. In order to make Bay Area colleges better serve and be more responsible to the surrounding poor and oppressed communities, the Black Student Alliance instituted a program for free books and supplies, a free transportation program, childcare services, a financial aid program, a food program serving good nutritious food at reasonable prices, and the initiation of relevant courses along with the demand for better instructors. I mean, in other words, it basically made it possible for you to go to school, to college, and not have to worry about those basic human needs that Sarah, you were talking about. 
to survive, right? You were actually able to learn in that environment. Because mm-hmm. uh, again, let's go back to just in terms of when this was in history, think about, we've talked about redlining in the past. We've talked about the lack of generational wealth being passed down. There is a huge income disparity and also not as much access to all the programs and jobs that are out there. So there was like literally inability of black students to go to higher education and afford that at, at certain times in history. So this was a great stopgap to allow for more black students to participate. Yeah. And to tie them to the community, I think as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that they're helping to lift everyone, right? The students, the community, everyone. And last of the initiative list is on the initiative list rather is the Black Panther newspaper. And this newspaper was the official organ of the Black Panther Party. It was a tabloid sized newspaper that was published regularly every week starting in April, 1967. It was copyrighted by Huey P. Newton and was 24 pages distributed nationally. So the Black Panther newspaper provided news and information about the work of the Black Panther Party chapters throughout the country, news and news analysis of the Black and other oppressed communities in the United States, Africa, and around the world, theoretical writings of party ideologists, and general news features on all matters relative to the liberation of humankind from oppression of any kind. And this is, again, according to the party's chief of staff, David Hilliard, which I think is amazing that they had this massive news distribution possibility. And that news was focused on news that was relevant to them that was often excluded from mainstream news sources. Totally. I mean, I go back to thinking about when they founded and they founded it in 1966. And if you hear these dates, they did all of these things within the first couple of years of this organization. You think about the ability to mobilize and make a difference and based on a vision that you have for the needs of your community. I think it's just incredibly powerful what they did. Yes. And as they created these programs and engaged in these political activities, their popularity really grew. So they drew widespread support from urban centers with large minority communities, not surprisingly, of course, including Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia. So by 1968, and Sarah, you mentioned just now that they were formed in 1966, the Black Panthers had roughly 2,000 members across the country, which is pretty impressive for you know a grassroots organization that was founded by two individuals in before the internet. Right. Before any means of social media organizing, right? That which sounds great, right? It does sound great. But, you know, I think this stands in contrast to sort of popular perception. Because I think before we go too much further, I think there's got to be people asking like, well, wait, we've heard bad things about the Black Panthers. Like, how could they have been good? And I think sitting with this is to kind of embrace the complexity of life, how not everything is black and white, no pun intended, and why we need to see the whole picture and the humanity and the context of all of these things too, because there's two common pushbacks around the Panthers. One is like, wasn't the Black Panther Party a violent organization? And last episode, we did talk about the work that they did policing the police and doing all that. I mean, it does have a complicated history that did include violence. In 1967, founder Huey Newton allegedly killed Oakland police officer John Frey, and Newton was convicted of voluntary manslaughter in 1968, and he was sentenced two to 15 years in prison, though appellate court later reversed the conviction. There was also Eldridge Cleaver, who was editor of the Black Panther newspaper, and 17-year-old Black Panther member and treasurer Bobby Hutton, who were involved in a shootout with the police in 1968, where Hutton died and two police officers were wounded. So yeah, there was violence. But it's important to remember that a lot of what we've been told about the Black Panther Party has been through the lens of the white narratives put in place because there was a lot of fear around the growth of the party. And this fear really, 
you know, was clear when we learned about what the FBI did. And I was surprised. I had no idea what the FBI did until recently. So I want you to all be as shocked as I was because I had no idea. Yeah. The FBI is a tricky group, especially around this time, because this is the Hoover era FBI. So here are some of the things that the FBI did. In August of 1967, the growing national prominence of this organization, and you know, this is a less than a year after its establishment, drew the attention of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who began a counterintelligence program, officially known as COINTELPRO, to neutralize the Black Panthers and other Black nationalist hate groups. And these are in heavy quotes. I'm not sure if you can hear that in my voice, but yes. Hate groups, right? Does that sound familiar in terms of, you know, trying to twist the intentions of a group and portray them as hate groups? Just again, let's let's think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Change the narrative. Yeah, just a little bit. I can't think of that might have happened in the last five years. Yeah. So, I mean, hearing this, did you know that there was a whole counterintelligence program designed against the Black Panthers and other groups like this? And Sarah, as you mentioned, you know, this is not surprisingly very similar to the same intelligence programs being used to monitor Black Lives Matter activities today. Using informers, false propaganda and harassment, the FBI sought to foster conflict within the Black Panther Party and between the party and rival groups. So I guess if you can't erase them from existence, right? You get them to implode from the inside. At least that was one of their strategies. But fueled in part by this campaign, the strength of the party declined precipitously. <laughs> I think we just got to keep them all in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> declined precipitously, yes, in the early 1970s, particularly after founder Huey Newton began purging the organization of leaders he believed disloyal. So... Whether, you know, where he got that information from about them being disloyal is really could be partially due to the FBI. The most famous purge divided the party into rival factions in 1971 when Newton expelled Eldridge Cleaver. Remember, we just talked about Eldridge Cleaver in that shootout with police in what was called the Newton Cleaver split. And the fallout was bad. In 1982, the Black Panther Party was officially dissolved and the Oakland Community School closed. And remember, that was one of those eight programs that the Black Panther Party was really known for. At this time, Newton was charged with embezzling $600,000 from the school. He was sentenced to six months in prison after pleading no contest to stealing $15,000 in state aid intended for the school. In 1989, Newton was 47 years old when he was killed on a West Oakland street by gang member Tyrone Robinson, allegedly over a drug deal. Robinson was convicted of murder. So hearing all of that, what does that say about the group? And maybe the bigger question is, does it really say anything at all? You know, how can we possibly assess the impact that our government and in particular, you know, the FBI and their led campaign had on the fallout of an organization and the individuals who led it? Because we won't know any other history than how it went down and and really what we've been told about it. It's interesting, right? And not to say there's such a thing as fake news. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm just saying is like, or what you're saying, you know, like, it's not about that. We just can't tell how else it could have gone down. And how do you judge something's good or bad based on these sorts of facts? The world is too gray for that. Yes. And especially when there's such involvement by external forces determined to bring that group down. Totally. 
The second critique, I mentioned the first one before, was weren't they, you know, super violent? The second critique was about how male-dominated the Black Panther Party was. But when Elaine Brown, who was one of the female leaders of the Black Panther Party, was asked a question, making it clear that the assumption was that, you know, mostly women are doing the cooking in the kitchen for the food project, she responded with an extended and a fierce response. And to paraphrase, she said that this was an assumption a lot of the white feminists made about the Black Panther Party, the stereotype that the guys were a bunch of macho thugs and that the women in the party were subservient and relegated to the kitchen. What Elaine Brown says does match up with what other women of color activists, you know, Asians, Latina, Indigenous were experiencing in their interactions with the white feminist movement during that period, which is to say that white feminists often made assumptions and believed in unverified stereotypes about non-white women. And that's where intersectional feminism and the importance of that comes in. Right. Because as discussed by another Asian female activist at the time, unlike some of the more extreme feminists, the women of color who were activists did not regard most of their men to be the enemy in their work. And in fact, their work to change backwards attitudes of the men made them better people, more supportive partners and strengthen the movement. This woman also noted, but there was tension with some of the white feminists who not only were sometimes pretty arrogant, but also tended to only see things from a very narrow white middle and upper class viewpoint without regard for the additional realities of poverty and racism, which our communities faced. They also apparently did not recognize that most of our organizations had many women in leadership positions. Yeah. And on that note, I mean, the Black Panther Party clearly and visibly had women in positions of leadership on all levels, including at the very top. I mean, just to name some names so you sort of hear them, Elaine Brown, Erica Huggins, Kathleen Cleaver, Frederica Newton, Barbara Cox, and just so many others. The person who headed up the food projects in the Bay Area on the other side was a man, Melvin Dixon. And some might have assumed that that position would have been automatically assigned to a woman. I mean, I'm not saying that there were no women cooking in the kitchens, but if you look at the photos of the Black Panther Party free breakfast program, most of the photos have the men coming out of the kitchen with plates of food for the children. So that wasn't necessarily true. As time notes, many activists really do acknowledge that the Panthers were neither a monolith nor perfect. They were plagued at various points by infighting, sexism, and violence. But Michael Sampson II says that what we've learned from the Panthers is much greater than the failures of what they've done. And many of their ideals continue to reverberate and gain steam today. And if you're asking yourself what sort of ideals, you know, a great example is that their call for reparations for Black people because of slavery has been re-energized by the writings of Ta-Nehisi Coates and congressional candidates who have recently made it a part of their campaigns. And, you know, as we're recording this, H.R. 40 is being discussed right now, which is that bill for reparations. You know, also, while the world socialism and Sarah, you and I have discussed this a lot alone still rankles many Americans, just like it did in the 1960s when the Panthers championed it. Polls have shown that support for some form of socialism has increased over the last decade. And I mean, you know, we can clearly go down a rabbit hole here, but, you know, that's a, a yet another podcast. I'm married to a Canadian. I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition, in which he united disenfranchised Black, Hispanic, and white organizing groups, has inspired activists, you know, across the board to form alliances across demographic lines and class solidarity. And long before Andrew Yang was espousing universal basic income in his, you know, 2020 bid for the presidency, the Black Panthers wrote in their 10-point program, 
We believe the federal government is responsible and obligated to give every man employment or a guaranteed income. You know, so as one Black Panther historian noted, when the Panthers came out, so many people wondered what they were talking about. But we can go down the demands of the 10-point program one by one, and so many people would agree with all of them, just like Sarah, you and I noted earlier. Yeah, I'm just still nodding this whole time. I mean, we've mentioned the 10-point plan so many times already, but notably, point five of that plan says this, we want decent education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. We believe in an education system that will give to our people a knowledge of the self. If you do not have knowledge of yourself and your position in society and in the world, then you will have little chance to know anything else. And I mean, all that I know is, I mean, knowledge of self applies so much to this work. You know, when we spoke with Soraya Shamali, we talked about the power of women's rage and how we need to feel like we're worthy in order to be able to stand up for ourselves about our anger. I mean, that's knowing ourselves. When we spoke to Professor Karen Douglas about conspiracy theories, we realized just how much certain psychological characteristics can make us susceptible to falseness because it gives us a sense of purpose when we otherwise we don't feel like we belong to sort of latch on to these other theories to explain these injustices. I mean, that's knowing about ourselves and others and making sure we're also looking out for each other in connection. And in her interview with Jenna Arnold, she pointed out that so many white women don't even know how much political and financial power they actually hold. We have to know about ourselves and our position in society. And that need comes from both our education system and from our own self in education too. And I think that also extends to Black people knowing their rightful history, both in Africa and the greatness from which they came, and also the institutions that have been in place to continue to oppress them. Yes. I mean, as Erica Huggins, another Black Panther Party leader noted when interviewed in 2020, you know, she referred to this great James Baldwin quote that states, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. You know, and she notes, as we begin to talk to one another about the legacy of African-Americans and indigenous people and the building of the U.S., we break out of the traps of untold histories. We personally find freedom in telling truth together. If we don't assess the impact of history that is alive in all of us, we will continue to be unhealthy. Learning about the Black Panther Party informs not only our understanding of that history, but how the modern day Black Lives Matter movement has been treated and causes us to ask, wouldn't we all be better off with those social safety nets, especially for those who most need them to survive? If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation.